Welcome to the F Less Travelled, Tracing Feminist Pathways, with Amelia and Sabrina. We're making space for stories and feminist journeys, inviting guests to share three books, two songs and one object, things that have been their feminist friends along the road. Hi and welcome to today's episode, where we'll be chatting with June Reed. June is an MA Cultural Studies student at Goldsmiths and is researching black females who run and operate all-female sound systems in the UK. She herself has co-run and co-operated Nzinga Sounds alongside her long-term friend, Linda Rosenoir Patton. Outside of university, she works part-time as a registrar of births, deaths and marriages. During the 80s, she was very active in the arts and cultural sectors, including working with Sedo Film and Video Workshop and sitting on the boards of Apples and Snakes, uh, which was performance poetry, Manira Theatre Company, a black women's theatre group, and the Black Art Gallery Organisation for Black Arts Advancement and Learning Activities. She has a deep love for live music and a passion for travelling, and we look forward to tracing some of those travels today. June Welcome to the show. Before we get your three, two, one, we'd like to hear where you are right now. Where are you physically? Where are you psychically? And anything else that feels important to you? Okay, thank you so much, Sabrina and Amelia, for inviting me onto your podcast. I think it's a fantastic initiative you've taken, and I wish you all the best with forthcoming um, shows. So um, you asked me where I was physically. Physically, I'm um, um, I live in Lewisham. I'm, I'm in my home at the, at the top level, second floor house. Where am I psychically? I think that's a really interesting question. I haven't thought about that. I'm I'm trying to be in a spiritual zone, or or, or I am. I have reconnected with crystals and reconnected with essences and the current essence that I'm taking is an Australian bushflower essence called solar and um, I would encourage you to look it up because when I look at the reading around the purpose of this essence and also when I talk to other people that are on a spiritual journey we it's we're in a period of great change that's been manifested you know it's whether you're psychic or not whether you're believing it or not you can't deny that across the world we're in this space of turmoil. Um, but spiritually, people see it as a time of big change. Um, and people on that kind of psychic energy, psychic level are doing things to kind of engage with that massive change that we're going through. Interesting question. Thank you for sharing that with us, June. It sounds like you're in a, a really grounding space at the minute, which I think is what we all need in such an uncertain time, right? So we're interested in hearing about your book choices today. Could you please share your first book choice with us that's been your feminist friend? So I was just looking up um, about it because uh, it's by um, a, an American woman and her bio kind of goes on forever, but... She is an inspirational speaker, lawyer, author, life coach, amongst many, many other roles. And her name is Ayala Van Zandt. And Acts of Faith came out in 1993, before you were even conceived, I know that. Um, and it's, it's an extremely powerful book, and I talk about it in the present. Um, it's the sort of the subtitle is Daily Meditations for People of Colour. 
And Ayanla came here, I'm not sure which year, but it would have been shortly after the book, because obviously it was a tour to publicise the book. And I saw her at a cinema um, on the Portobello Road with um, a group of friends, and the place was rammed with black women and it was mostly if not entirely black women and the energy was electric because I think that many of us needed a book like that a book of daily meditations that was written for us because um I don't want to give away my age because I'm old but I was yeah I was mid-20s I think um or mid-30s even yeah um when the book came out and Sometimes it's with books of that type, it directly, the particular meditation on that day directly spoke to you in terms of where you were. And I think um, being of that age, um, there was lots going on in, 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 in one's life, in my life. And it's like you needed something to uplift you, give you that deeper insight into a particular situation. Um, and it was just a very, very powerful book, very powerful. And she was very inspirational, extremely inspirational. And she spoke from personal experience, you know, whether it was um, business life, whether it was personal life. She was a mother as well. She'd had many challenges in her life on a personal level. So that fed into her meditations and they were very, very uplifting. I think my second choice was... Um, I laugh when I think about it. The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Now, if anybody has not read that book, oh my God, I urge them to. It was also turned into a film and it was quite a, a good representation of the book. Now, I was thinking about this again this morning and I remember I've always, well, in that sort of, from a secondary school, no, primary school child, I've always lived in South East London. And I can see myself upstairs on a bus, double-decker bus, and I'm going along the New Kent Road and I'm in stitches reading this book and I am, I can't suppress the laughter. And I still remember that in a sense of, it was an amazing book. It's about, um, I have to reread it again, but from my memory, it's about a black person who infiltrates, I think it's the CIA and his exploits. And, um, at the time, I remember going to one of Tony Warner's talks at the BFI, and he does some amazing talks about films and about books. So he was talking about the film, which was obviously based on the book. And it came out at that time, but possibly before, that the CIA had tried to destroy all copies of that book, because obviously the spook is, is a metaphor, literally. So it's a black man, and a spook is obviously black. And they were so horrified by this book, they tried to destroy all copies of it. But Sam Greenlee, who's the author, stashed away the original manuscript, so it's it's still in existence. And the other thing about this book was that it was the first book published, in, I think in the late 60s, by Alison and Busby. And um, But the Busby is Margaret Busby, and I think she was the youngest publisher um, and black woman female publisher at the time and she's still publishing books and she's an amazing icon um and she recently reissued or republished rather um and and uh, upgraded the doors of the dust uh, book which is an amazing book of black female writers and i urge you to 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 get it 
But yeah, I still love that book. And at some time when I finish the MA and, and no, I'm not going to say possibly, and the PhD, I'll go back and read it. And maybe I'll try and find the film um, on, on, on you know, YouTube or something. And I would urge you to read the book, but you know, big students possibly watch the film because it's a brilliant, brilliant story. And it's hysterical um, in some of the metaphors, in some of the portrayals in it. It's brilliant. So June, I just wanted to um, just ask, rewind a little bit and ask yeah. about that first book that you spoke about. Yeah. Um, it's a book that I've has come into a couple of um, WhatsApp groups that I'm in. Oh. Um, particularly, um, I've got a couple of groups that are yogis of colour and things like that. Oh, brilliant. And I've it's always been on my list and I, and I, I haven't got around to it yet. And I'm interested in this concept of, of daily meditations, but specifically looking at... Um, women of color and and how that how you felt it added value i know there's i'm just thinking right now about there's a huge wellness industry yet it feels so centered around whiteness mm. and how books like that might help to um subvert uh the notion of wellness subvert self-care or the way that it's been ad adopted and retrained in a kind of neoliberal capitalist way um, um, yeah, so just share a bit more about the, the value of speaking to black women. That's really interesting, the, that question, because I hadn't connected it to this whole industry that you're talking about. And it makes me even think, um, before I answer your, your question, how amazing Ayanda was and is when you think this is 1993. And she's got a whole series of books that I'll um, touch on when I find them on Google. Um, I hadn't looked at other books that were non-black, and I think that um, that I think a book of that on that level because it goes deep um, in terms of the black female experience, um, black female emotions, black female trauma, black female distress, but in a positive and uplifting way. I think even if I was getting the book now. I would go for a book like that. I wouldn't go for a generic book because in her subsequent books, and obviously in this one, as I kind of touched on, she's speaking to our emotions. And therefore, when she does that, and when she tries to uplift, it has a, a different effect because I'm not saying that, well, maybe I am saying actually, I think that where, where there were black women, where there were, um, gay women, non-binary, our, our, our experiences cannot be collided into one. They're going to be very, there's going to be some overlap, but there's going to be some very distinct features that set us apart. And so I'm kind of repeating myself, but what I'm trying to convey is that the power of that book is, as I said earlier, was from where it came from, her immediate direct, visceral, embodied experience. So it connected like that, you know, um, I'm, I'm hitting my two hands together. It was like, oh my God, you know, um, that feeling that I'm feeling, that emotion I'm feeling, um, I don't need to chastise myself for because other black women, Ayanla, have been there. And back in those times in the eighties and the nineties, you know, your friendship circles, you, you will be talking about your different experiences. And that's what made your friendship circles so important because you were going through 
similar experiences to your friends or your relatives. And I was an only child um, here because my 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 two brothers and sisters were born in Jamaica. And one came over when he was a teenager, so I didn't have other. I didn't have sisters, and I didn't have a lot of cousins um, at the time. Um, so having friends who were reading the same things as you or similar things to you, go through the same things to, uh, as you. It was a, a, an empowering and valuable experience. Yeah, that's really interesting, June. And I think um, you've raised a point around uh, the myriad experiences that we have from our different positionalities, whether that be around our sexuality, our gender expression, our race, any number. Class. Class yeah. and and how I we have kind of interwoven stories that have places where they come together and places where they become disjointed. And actually, it's not necessarily about one story being more important exactly. or one experience, but it is about us realigning the kind of stories that we hear. So actually, just the notion of black women's meditations. What does that give to black women who haven't felt or heard? that kind of prompt before and how you know I'm thinking again within the wellness industry how often I see um Audrey Lord uh, quotes uh, and people are quoting her left right and center but I wonder if actually many of these women who are quoting Audrey Lord if they've actually read any of her work or if it's just become a totem an idea a thing and particularly as she is a black queer woman that people kind of see that as their intersectionality practice. And so uh, I, I think it's exciting to lift up books by women of colour and, and going beyond the idea of just a quote that we stick on Instagram um, or, uh, you know, being able to uh, say, say one name, uh, but actually being able to look, study, read, enjoy, laugh. You spoke about uh, your, your second book and it made you laugh. And I think it's also wonderful for us to think about these feminist experiences as joyful, that they can be great educational experiences, but also they can be full of fun and laughter and, and great memories clearly um, for you as well, June. Completely. And I think as well with the two books that you've described so far um, and our conversation earlier about the crystals as well, it's kind of what do you find that grounds you and your feminism and is that in relation to a, another lived experience that you can relate to, or is it learning or unlearning, or is it a point in your life, like you said, that made you feel something, so intense laughter or happiness, or you felt a connection to something? I think that's why I enjoy these questions so much, is it's finding out the points in people's lives that have stuck with them, and everyone we spoke to has such a different way of explaining that connection, and yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Thank you for that. I think, um, sorry, I smile again. Um, so I'm trying to remember roughly the age that I was when I came to feminism. So it would have been sort of late teens, so I was about 19, 20, that kind of age. Um, and I got into well, it's Polytechnic as it was, so it's showing you how old, um, how far back we're going. And um, I had my school friends from um, my secondary school, um, a, a range of friends, but namely Jude Dennis and Linda, who's the co-owner 
of the sound system with me. And I think, and then, then when we went to Polytechnic, there was a group of women who had been doing June meds and who I subsequently met because they lived in the same halls or the same flats. But I commuted from home. And then when I did want to go, go and live outside of home, the university, there wasn't availability in Rivula. So again, I think through those women who are, I still know them and they're very, very highly intelligent women, very political. Um, uh, I'm not going to necessarily describe them as feminists because um, I think they I think that they would need to describe themselves. But there was always debate and discussion. And I remember talking a lot, probably with June and Linda, but definitely with, um, with June. And she was a staunch uh, feminist, you know, at the time, very, very clear, very folk, very clear um, about what she wanted for herself and what she didn't want. And um, at that time, you know, backing, we're talking about, um, as I said, the uh, late 70s, early 80s, there was only feminism, to my knowledge. Um, um, and so, but I, for me, I got to the 80s and I, I, I developed a friendship with a family friend who, who brought to my attention people like Malcolm um, and, you know, his autobiography, The Black Panthers, Angela Davis, obviously, uh, Natalie uh, Asata Shakur. So then I became, and I'm, I'm quite happy to use the word radicalised in terms of what we were being fed as young black people um, and how our history, our knowledge, our, ourselves were being denigrated. We were worthless. Um, as Linda has mentioned when we've been interviewed, so we came of age in the 80s as, um, you know, 20-plus-year-olds, uh, and um, and it was the, the miners' strike, it was Thatcher, it was a time of sus, you know, where black people, were, and mainly, um, I would say for me, but I might be wrong, black males were being stopped. And if, if anyone gets the chance also to look at the recent screening or, um, on iPlayer, and as well as on TV, the three series that um, Steve McQueen co-produced on Uprising, you'll get a sense of what black people and across the generations were, what their liberty was, what their, was, what their experiences are. And because it talks about the New Cross Fire at the centre, but gives you a really good context for what was happening to people generally, black people generally, it really then, I think, puts into context why we are the way we are, you know, this generation of 50, 60 year olds who don't trust the police. So then we get introduced to, I think more the writings at that time of Toni Morrison, Paula Marshall, and there's another key writer. Maya Angelou. Maya, sorry, that's who it is, thank you. So then, you know, at that time, we we're reading their, their, their writings, very powerful. And while they're set maybe back in time and they're set in America, some of the issues we've either experienced or we know of. And then we move forward and then we get black feminism. And for me, the writings of Patricia Hill Collins that I also raised as, as, a, as a, an important book to me because there's lots of talk about, um, another black feminist, obviously, but there's lots of talk about intersectionality and Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term. 
But people just read at that level, they're not appreciating that before Kimberley and before the coining of the term, there were people like Patricia Hill Collins, the Combahee Collective, um, a number of other black theorists that were talking about issues that are now under the umbrella of intersectionality, but they don't get mentioned. I get slightly irritated. And, you know, when when we um, came to um, feminism, womanism and so on, there wasn't the level of material that there is now. You know, we were studying without access to Google. You know, what was Google? You know, we had none, we, there was no internet. And I remember when I was at Middlesex Poly, that a computer took up the whole room, and I'm not exaggerating, it took up the whole room. So this is pre-internet, pre, you know, but we bought books and we read and we discussed things and we went to events. June, I was just going to say, you 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 mentioned Patricia Hill Collins then. Could you tell us the name of, of the book that, that you um, were, were thinking about? Yeah, it's called Black Feminist Thought. And it's got a subtitle, but it's still, obviously it's been republished. And I got, I think, a second-hand copy or, of the original publication. And I wasn't interested in what I'm about to say, but in searching for it, it's like 40 pounds now, this book. Um, but I think it's vital for those of us that in, are interested in black feminism and feminism generally, to read the works of Patricia Hill Collins, but also, uh, sorry, that was her prior book. The one that I actually advised you guys about was Intersectionality. And what's interesting is that they take this fast overview of intersectionality as it is uh, uh, taken forward in the West, but also in other parts of the world. And so there's a compare and a contrast. And um, I came across it a couple of years ago when I was um, completing one of the modules for my MA Cultural Studies. And um, I decided to do an essay on intersectionality, but I had to understand what this thing was because um, I was talking to a friend recently and she, you know, until recently didn't know what this thing was. And it was even being um, talk spoken about on BBC Radio 4 today. And I was thinking, what is this thing? You know, it became the buzzword two or three years ago. And obviously, Kimberly came here a couple of years ago and spoke at the LSE over three days. And I was a bit of a groupie and I killed myself to go to, to, go to all her events and so on. So I've really immersed myself in um, intersectionality. But I found... Um, the, the book that uh, uh, Patricia co-wrote with um, Surma, amazing because of the different angles it brought to the topic. And I think it will be a great uh, reference resource for me in the uh, essay that I'm going to do on intersectionality. We're going to ask you quite a tough question now, because I know that music plays a very big part in your life. Do you want to tell us the two songs that you've chosen as your feminist companion today, June? The first, the first one is really easy, and I always, I often reference it when I'm asked about my favourite song, and uh, it's kind of difficult and not because my musical taste goes across all forms of reggae except slack ones, um, all forms of soul, R and B. You know, going back to the 60s, because obviously I, that, that was the year that I was growing up hearing people like Aretha and Wilson Pickett and, um, you know, uh, 
other other iconic people, um, Ray Charles, those kind of people, um, Latin, jazz, music from around the continent, you saw in Door, Baba Mal, another lady song, Mio, Baby Manga. Um, so, but I chose One Drop by Bob Marley because I talk about it in terms of being like a, a um, African Caribbean hymn because we often play that song. It's like, I never tire of hearing or hearing it, but also people of my generation and maybe 10 years either side, it is like a, 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 a kind of contemporary hymn. People know the words inside out. You see people go back to where they were when they first heard that song. And interestingly, I found that um, when I watched, I think it was the third episode of Uprising, um, the Steve McQueen co-directed film, at least four or so of the people affected by the New Cross fire or who were part of the uprising in Brixton quoted different Bob Marley songs. And he is and remains a very powerful musician for most black people who were um, in their teens, secondary school age when he passed away and um you know one of my my next um essay that i'll be writing on is about the impact of bob marley on the world because um, as my supervisor said yesterday it's undeniable that he had an impact on the world i've just got to look at the what the why the where um so i'm glad he reminded me of that because i would have just gone on forever five thousand words about how amazing he was which is not quite the question um, my second track was Someday We'll All Be Free by Donny Hathaway and um, his daughter Layla, Lala Hathaway is an amazing singer. And the, the two choices, having to make two choices was difficult, but that song always brings me to tears because it's such a deeply, um, it's such a deep song. And it's tinged with sadness for me because Donny Hathaway took his life. He was an amazing singer and he was well recognised by his peers. But um, the, the words, you know, hang on to the world as it spins around. Um, and there were other lyrics which I can't necessarily remember, but it just seems such an emotional, deep, kind of almost sad song, but uplifting at the same time it's just a very powerful song and it you know i've heard that song over decades and it still brings this kind of sadness but spiritual i think has that spiritual effect on me and I, i'll never i never tire of hearing it beautiful song absolutely beautiful song thank you so much for sharing those June and I think you've really reminded us of the power of music it's storytelling and community and I'm thinking particularly about one drop and the the concept of one drop and how Bob Marley's reclaimed that notion reclaimed the the power and beauty of blackness as opposed to the the kind of negative connotations of being stained by blackness as so often it, it's been uh in the history of, of slavery in the Americas. Um, I'd like for us to move on to your feminist object. And I know actually for you, 
it's not an object. So can you tell us why you decided to shake things up a little bit today and, and, and what you'd like to share with us? So when you posed the question about what item, I, I was thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. And I thought, actually, it's not an item, it's a person. Um, and I mentioned to her earlier, it's uh, my departed friend, um, June Dennis. And there were other friends, but particularly her, because I remember the conversations that we used to have. And I met her at secondary school when, she was, when we were both 12. And um, there was eight days between our birthdays. And she did a lot of reading around, um, you know, subjects to do with black women. And I think I probably learned a lot from her reading um, rather than my direct reading, because I was focusing a lot, as I said, on history, black history and black politics. And um, yeah, you know, as I said, the, the people like Angela and, and uh, Bobby Seale and all those people of the Panthers. Um, and I just think I owe a lot to her in terms of the debates that as a group of friends, um, including Linda, that, you know, we could sit down and talk and express and share. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of fondness around those times and our growth, our development, our politicization, our coming to black feminism, then womanism, well, feminism, womanism, womanism, and then back to, or to black feminism, you know, and as, I, as I'm talking in, in your questions, I remember again, it's a shame, but on Charing Cross Road, there used to be this glorious bookshop called Silver Moon, and it was full of black feminists and feminist writers and people like um, Maya Angelou and Toni Morris, it's no longer there. But I would have a problem being anywhere in that area because I'd just go in for a little look and come out with tens of pounds of books or cards or whatever. And it was like, I have lots of loves, one of them being crystals and jewellery and obviously records, records. And I'll tell you a little story about records in a moment. But don't put me anywhere near a bookshop particularly that one, because it was damaging my, 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 my pocket. And on records, I worked at Virgin Records in 1981 for a couple of years. I was, a, I've shared this story for us. I was a black, first black female who worked there as a sales assistant, but who wasn't the cleaner, who was black, and who wasn't the security guard, who was black. We're talking 1981. And I had to beg the um, store manager to give me a job because I'd just come out of Middlesex Policy with a business studies degree. And he said, I won't, I won't stay. And I thought, give me a job, I need a job. And when I left, I could still see myself, don't know how I got home on public transport with this big box of records that I'd use my bonus. You know, it was like a free figure sum at the time, I think, to buy records that I'd stashed in the back, in the back and that I was buying on a monthly basis. So, you know, bonus into my pay, into my uh, bank account, out to Virgin Megastore in this box of records that I bought as, you know, as my leaving gift to myself, you know. Thank you so much for sharing that, June, and taking us back to your school days and the days in, in the bookshop with, with June. Um, can tell it's really special memories for you and it was really lovely to hear. So 
Thank you for sitting with us today and explaining your feminist companions and your journey to, to now. Is there anything you would like to share with us and our listeners before you go? I think the only thing I'd like to share is that I've met you both, um, uh, uh, worked closely with Amelia recently, and then um, I was on a Eventbrite um, session on Monday, which had Jade Bentil speaking around intersectionality. And what struck me was you guys are easily two, three, maybe even four generations younger than me. And you guys are doing the work to really analyze, share, explain, learn about black feminism, intersectionality. And the way you articulate it is off the hook really, really off the hook. And, um, you know, having met you properly this morning, Sabrina, but having spoken to Amelia in depth over the last almost week, it's just an, uh, amazing. And I think that the um, future generation of people, black people, black young people now will gain a lot because where intersectionality and black feminism has advanced by leaps and bounds when you compare it to me being your age. I'm just thinking that, that you guys are doing the work, you're doing the research, you're doing the writing, you're, you're, you've developed this initiative to share, you know, the feminist journey of others. And I just think it's amazing, absolutely amazing. And I congratulate you. So that's my um, observation. And the fact that there's also, which I think is really important, collaboration. So people like Jade and uh, I forget the other two women who were um, facilitating the, the session. I mean, the fact that those events, for example, are free. You know, so I started watching it on the train, got off the train, had it in my car because I'm hands free, you know, and a whole range of women who shared stuff around um, their feminist journey. Listen, June, um, to use your vernacular, this conversation was off the hook. We loved chatting with you. And also just this amazing reminder of, of the access that we can have to conversations, intergenerational conversations, sharing joy, accessing different ways for us to learn and, and interrogate our feminisms. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the F Less Travelled. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. And most importantly, get in touch and tweet us at F underscore travelled with your books, songs and feminist objects. Let's reimagine the archive together. Hashtag this is my canon. For transcript and more information, you can find us at gold.ac.uk forward slash Centre for Feminist Research. With huge thanks to the Centre for Feminist Research for all of their support, as well as the Centre for Urban and Community Research and Methods Lab, all based at Goldsmiths College, University of London. Thank you to Kat Davies-Herbst for our artwork and Rory Patterson-Achenbach for sound production. With feminist love, Amelia and Sabrina.